welcome back to the podcast. We're recording this episode in May 2020 during the COVID-19 lockdown and that means we can use the magic of technology to speak to anybody just as easily no matter where they are. That's right. So we're taking the opportunity to speak to Elizabeth McGregor who's currently a doctoral student at the University of Sheffield. Elizabeth is a music education specialist and she's recently had two articles published which we thought were worth looking at in detail. The first of those articles is entitled Justifying Music in the National Curriculum. It was published in the British Journal of Music Education and it's a detailed look at the latest iteration of the National Curriculum for Music in England, reflecting on how it aims to bring about social justice and equity. As part of critiquing the curriculum, Elizabeth proposes an alternative approach. Since teachers in Wales are grappling with big questions about curriculum, this seems like an article worth discussing whether or not you're a music specialist. Meanwhile, Elizabeth has also had another article published in Music Education Research entitled Participatory Performance in the Secondary Music Classroom and the Paradox of Belonging. This article is a great example of classroom-based research, so we also wanted to take a look at that to see what it can tell us about how research can inform the work of teachers on a really practical level. Lots to cover in this episode then, so we'll introduce our guest, Elizabeth McGregor, from the University of Sheffield. And from the University of Sheffield, but actually joining us from Cambridge, I gather. Elizabeth, how are you doing? Hi, Tom. Yeah, well, thank you. Good, good. So we've got loads to talk about today, and this is quite exciting for me because you are a fellow music person, um, which is lovely, <laughs> having a music person. But actually, as we were saying there, a lot of the things that we, we're going to be talking about are very, very relevant, I think, to a lot of subjects. So first of all, um, for those of us sitting over the border in Wales, um, things are a little bit different over there in England in terms of kind of curriculum policy and the way things are over there politically. Obviously, you know, the, the aim is always to try and achieve social justice and equity for young people that we teach. But there's some there's slightly different slant on things over there. I mean, can you just kind of summarise that? just in a sort of general sense, in a non-musical sense, for those of us who sit sort of safely over the border, if that's how to put it. Yes, yeah, of course. Um, So the English National Curriculum went through a reform just before 2014. So the new National Curriculum has been around since 2014 and finished being phased in in about 2017. And unlike the Welsh reforms, it was quite a quick process the reviews happened very quickly um, without huge amounts of consultation. And the main kind of aim of this new curriculum was to be more academically rigorous. So in all subjects, there was a greater emphasis on having knowledge for knowledge's sake, whatever that looks like in, in different subjects, with the idea that by aiming to have higher academic achievement, all pupils from all backgrounds would have greater access to the education that they were entitled to. And what was interesting, we're going to look at your first article um, to begin with, Justifying Music in the National Curriculum. You talk very early on about this particular type of knowledge that the government are alluding to there as, as abstract knowledge and you unpick some of the problems with this notion of abstract knowledge and posit that maybe emancipatory knowledge is is more important so I wondered if you wanted to kind of just give us an insight into what you mean by this idea of abstract and emancipatory knowledge. Yeah and um, so abstract knowledge is a particularly 
big issue in subjects like music and drama, where abstract knowledge would be to know about music, for example. So the national curriculum in England has a strong emphasis on the classical canon and great composers. So there seems to be this particular slant on knowing about composers, about music history, about what music from certain periods or certain genres should be like. And the issue, obviously, with that, if anyone who is a musician or would call themselves musical probably would agree that to be a musician, you don't have to have that degree of abstract knowledge. That's not what defines music, as it were. Music is often much more about creativity and the ability to perhaps compose or improvise or play an instrument, but not with those very set degrees of existing knowledge. Yeah, something that I looked at in detail in my article was this idea of emancipatory knowledge, which is the concept that pupils or or all people should have a degree of knowledge which enables them to identify where there are structures of like hierarchy and power structures which exist in society which may be promoting certain types of knowledge or preventing them from accessing certain aspects of of their education or of um, society. Um, And this idea that for pupils to actually have a kind of well-rounded education, they need to be taught to recognise those different structures in society so that they can question what is um, the status quo, as it were. Thanks, Elizabeth. And it strikes me from those two descriptions that potentially, and this is kind of where pedagogy comes in, potentially abstract knowledge, it could be quite a passive process where pupils are are filled with the best of what has been thought and said, and are told that this is the canon and, you know, like it <laughs> or lump it <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> whereas you're talking about a much more engaged a much less passive approach a much more active approach and much more critically engaged in pro- approach um, within an emancipatory knowledge kind of model was that something that you found manifested itself particularly within the music curriculum and 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 where did that come through when you were comparing the old and the new yeah so these 2014 reforms were really interesting so the curriculum went from being kind of several pages of documents with different assessment levels and it, it was very complicated lots of prescribed um, knowledge um and the new um, document was only two sides of A4 so it's really succinct and on the face of it it's not very prescriptive you can kind of look at it and think okay this gives teachers lots more freedom to to do things like question dominant social knowledge and actually encourage their pupils to question those things but when you read into it it still has that language of abstract knowledge it still talks about the canon, it still talks about great composers, talks about things like listening to high quality recordings, which makes you wonder, you know, what what about other recordings? Um, But what's fascinating there is because they are a lot shorter um, and technically a lot less prescriptive, there is the potential for teachers to look into these guidelines and say, okay, this, the national curriculum expects me to teach about the canon, but do I need to teach my pupils that the canon is objectively correct knowledge? 
or can I tell them about how the canon has been socially constructed um, or what they might think to be the canon or why why the canon is even a concept that exists. So actually being able to introduce that aspect of emancipatory knowledge into the guidelines which are given is something that the, those 2014 guidelines have in favour um, over the previous ones. Now, I find this really interesting because this this debate over what the subject of music should look like and where this kind of Western classical canon kind of fits in the picture goes all the way back to the introdu- introduction of the national curriculum in the 90s. You know, people were absolutely kicking off about this all the way back then. And it's interesting that, that it, when, when things take a turn a little bit for this knowledge-based, what you might call traditionalist approach more generally, this is, this is where music can struggle as a subject a little bit because it is, it's seen, I think, for better or worse in some circles, to be more at the progressive end of, of subjects. You know, I was reading an article the other day saying it was a subject that had been captured by the progressives. <laughs> and um, another thing that really grabbed me in your article was that you found or you suggested another definition for learning or progress. Because we hear an awful lot at the moment about learning or progress being defined as a change in the long term memory. You know, the cognitive scientist crowd really love that. And, and a lot of musicians and I guess people from the arts in general have a bit of a problem with that. They don't see it as a very good fit in our subject. And Martin Fortley on Twitter goes on about it quite a lot. You, you mentioned the habit concept, and I found this really kind of attractive as an idea. So c- can you just kind of talk us through that a little bit yeah so the habit concept is something that comes from philosophical pragmatism which has actually been quite a popular slant in music education especially from american and canadian music education and i kind of stumbled across this somewhat accidentally and yeah like you say tom it it just really appealed to me so the habit concept basically suggests that for human flourishing to take place, we need to aspire to something called reflexive habituality, which is basically the idea that we all have kind of particular ways that we respond to to different situations. And one of the most important um, skills that, that a human can have is to be able to take up new habits and break with old ones when the circumstances um, suggest that that's necessary. So if you take that concept then the process of learning is to do with actually being able to break with old habits when necessary and take up new ones and so yeah progress is about not just kind of perhaps extending knowledge that we already have or making long-term changes in our memory but it's being able to actually reject the old or kind of replace the old with new habits that are required to make the most of whatever our new circumstances or situations are. Which I guess doesn't exclude the kind of quest for greater knowledge, deeper knowledge, more knowledge, but it doesn't make it the only important factor in in a child's education and indeed for sort of social equality. And I think this is the big dimension of your article that really kind of spoke to me as a as a drama teacher as well in that, you know, I don't think many people can dispute the importance of 
our pupils knowing a lot about the subject and, and knowing a kind of wide range of genre composers practitioners from a drama perspective but it's not it's not the only reason why we're there and in fact you know we we work in such uh, practical and embodied ways in drama that if we don't have a definition of learning that does embrace some of those very distinctive parts of our practice then we kind of risk you know sort of marginalizing our subject even more or just reducing it to kind of the 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 least exciting aspects of it as a as a discipline yeah I think that's something that I discussed in my article and that kind of when I was rereading it recently I was kind of restruck by was that actually that this definition of learning and progress means that subjects like drama and music should stand out even more. There should be even more reason why we teach them because they're the kind of subjects where actually even in everyday classrooms, pupils are called upon to make split second decisions to respond in the moment to new situations and circumstances. If you're halfway through, you know, an improvisatory sketch or composition or something and you have to suddenly respond to somebody else in your group then you might have to put aside whatever your preconceptions of that sketch were going to be and change completely and in so many other subjects that's not called for it doesn't exist with that kind of temporal flux that requires us to be making on the spot decisions about how we're going to change our habits in response And so, yeah, I think there's something really special that can be learnt through participatory subjects like that. One of the one of the kind of most controversial, I guess, aspects of the new proposed curriculum in Wales is this idea that we ask schools, we ask teachers and to some extent pupils, I suppose, to come up with a locally relevant interpretation of the curriculum you know that's that's a big ask for schools around here and there there probably are people around going oh you know do we really have to do this it's really interesting to see an article coming from england from a very different educational landscape which seems to be calling for that as a as an as an important thing I mean, how how important do you feel it is that teachers have the kind of skills and the dispositions to actually do that to engage with the curriculum and to create a locally relevant version of it Yeah, I think, personally, I think it's absolutely crucial, especially, I keep harping on about it, but in subjects that are a bit different, like music and drama, you can't assume that the people who designed the national curriculum necessarily have music teacher, drama teachers, pupils' interests at heart because they're not necessarily experienced in those subjects. The English national curriculum is interesting. So like the Welsh reforms, they did want to give teachers a bit more say in how the curriculum was delivered. The principle in the Welsh reforms of subsidiarity wasn't quite so explicit in the English reforms, but there was this idea that if we if we make the guidelines less prescriptive, a little bit shorter, then teachers have got some more flexibility to teach how they choose. And I think that is crucial. I think for teachers to be able to engage with the curriculum, for example, if we look at the example of the canon, so a classically trained teacher can look at that and say, oh, good, that's something I'm confident with. I'm able to teach the canon. I'm familiar with it. And if that's what their capability is, then that's great. If you've got a teacher who actually 
has some disagreements with the canon and thinks, I'm not sure this is what I want to be defining as music to my children, then there is great opportunity for them to critique it, to involve more of this idea of emancipatory knowledge. Other teachers might think of other canons, popular music canons, pupils' own canons. That's one of my favourite activities to do with children. But the interesting thing with the English reforms is that having kind of had a couple of years of this very slender, unprescriptive document, a couple of years ago now there was a move by the government to introduce the model music curriculum, which has... Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> been theorised as this a, a supplementary, not compulsory curriculum that would be drafted by a music organisation over which there has been much dispute to kind of help teachers and reduce their workload. So despite the government's initial suggestion that they actually wanted teachers to take more control, there's now this kind of recognition that teachers are being overworked, so we'll give them more prescriptive guidelines so that they have less work or less control. And, you know, that's only supplementary. It's not that teachers will have to follow it. It actually hasn't been published yet. There's been lots of arguments about what it should be like. And who should write it, actually? Yeah, who it's should write it? That's not even Quite really controversial shenanigans. No. And I suppose there's, there's a fundamental misunderstanding there about what teachers want in order to, A, reduce their workload and what they want to be spending their time on. I'm sure that most teachers would say that they'd love and relish the opportunity to actually talk about the canon, talk about their own localised curricula, as opposed to some of the more kind of mundane and, and bureaucratic aspects of teaching and learning that uh, are imposed yes. by government in this accountability culture. Something that you touched upon there, Elizabeth, that I wanted to pick up on, just thinking about your papers generally. We're going to be looking at the second one in a bit. But um, something that struck me about your writing is that both of your articles obviously are very academically rigorous. They're strong on the application of kind of theoretical models and they're really clear in kind of stipulating practical implications. But I think the important thing is that they really do seem to speak to classroom practitioners. And I wondered, as an academic, how important is it to you that classroom music teachers are, are able to access and use your research papers to enhance their practice? Yeah, so it's so important. I mean, what would be the point <laughs> otherwise? Um, mm. I sit here kind of doing my PhD in music education and it's very easy to be like, well, this is very interesting and maybe some other academics will read it and think it's interesting. But to be perfectly honest, what's the point if classroom teachers never get to look at it, never you know, if it never actually impacts what goes on in classrooms, then what's the point? And it is difficult because there are all kinds of walls that this research gets hidden behind. I've had lots of teachers get in touch with me on social media being like, can I read your article? And they can't access it because it, you have to pay for access to the journal. And it, you know, I find that really sad because I, much as I want my work to be recognised in academic circles, actually the point is that it makes a difference in classrooms. And I know that as having done some classroom teaching, it's looking at other people's research, things that have worked well for them, someone else having done the, the kind of heavy theoretical stuff behind classroom teaching is really helpful um, when you're in the classroom yourself and you don't have the opportunity to sit down for several hours and scan through the national curriculum and critique every point you need somebody else to have done that 
you know, written about it, given it to you, and then you can put it into practice yourself. But there's definitely, yeah, at the moment there are a lot of boundaries between the academy and the school. Okay, thank you. Um, We're going to move on to the other article you've had published, the one about uh, participatory performance, uh, in which you talk about the paradox of belonging. The participatory performance thing is interesting from a music point of view particularly, but potentially from the point of view of some other areas as well. Talking about this kind of difference in the way people experience music in in different cultures and what what can you tell us about that participatory performance against uh, presentational performance um presentational performance is a concept that's discussed by the ethnomusicologist thomas torino and he describes it as when music is prepared for performance to an audience so as in the western classical concert hall when we prepare music either solo or ensemble to perform to other people. Um, If we think about the classroom setting, actually, that's often what we do, whether intentionally or not. If we're asking pupils to perform music in groups or individually, we expect them to perhaps perform to their classmates or to perform in a school concert or to perform to us as the teacher or to record their music for it to be listened to later. So that's, that's presentational performance. And it has this kind of somewhat individualistic approach it's about us being appreciated by others um, producing a really polished performance that will be acceptable to whatever standards we're working towards Torino as an ethnomusicologist um, is particularly interested in the opposite idea which is a of participatory performance where music is prepared not for an audience but just for the experience of participating So in a participatory performance context, everybody's a performer. There's no distinction between performer, composer, audience. Everybody can be involved. You may well have some people who are perhaps more experienced, who are perhaps kind of leading a performance, but everybody else would be able to join in. So you might think of traditions like Torino talks about contra dancing in the US, so where everybody's either dancing or clapping or playing in the band. There isn't anybody kind of watching just for watching sake. It doesn't matter whether anybody makes mistakes because the point is that everybody's enjoying participating. And that in most cultures that aren't kind of our Western classical tradition, participatory performance is the kind of prime mode of music making. It means that anybody can be involved right from very tiny children sitting on their parents' laps right through to elders in the community and in the classroom that can be quite difficult to emulate as I've found during my research Um, but there are ways of doing it um, of encouraging pupils that music making doesn't have to be to please an audience or to meet certain criteria but it can be an experience by which everybody is involved whatever their existing accomplishments. I guess this is another example isn't it of predominantly western classical trained music teachers sticking with what they know similarly with the you know the veneration of the canon of you know Bach Beethoven Mozart all of that similarly this idea that music always has to have somebody who's doing the performing and then a bunch of people who are listening you know in in varying stages of well-behavedness and that again this is just a tiny proportion of how how the world uh, experiences music in terms of the number of people absolutely yeah 
Something that strikes me about it as well in the wrong hands is that you could potentially make the assumption that they're kind of mutually exclusive, that presentational doesn't necessarily need participatory parts of it to kind of lead to the presentational. We've got a similar kind of dichotomy in drama, which is kind of learning through drama and learning about drama. The learning through, there's a approach called process drama, which again is is not about the performing to others. It's not about the the presentational aspects of it. It's about the process and what you learn through it. But uh, something that struck me about your paper, particularly what was going on in the classroom, was that even though there were really important learning benefits to the participatory approach, there was still this kind of striving towards accuracy, perfection, fluency, flow was something that came up a lot um, in the pupils' comments. So I I just wondered what your thoughts were on on how kind of one kind of feeds into the other a little bit somehow. Yeah, and I think partly that was arising from my training as as a Western classical musician. So as a teacher in the classroom, I do go in with that mindset that is, I expect pupils to get it right. And if they're performing from notation, which we were in this instance, I value their accuracy. They value their accuracy too, because they want to be seen as doing it right. And that's important. But yeah, what I tried to do was kind of traverse that, that boundary between presentational and participatory so that what kind of end point that we were trying to get to was not a completely polished end product that we were going to perform to each other, but was something where we could all participate right from the couple of students who really found it difficult to play anything through to those who were quite well trained um, already and actually found the whole task very easy. So I think actually, yeah, in the classroom, it's very difficult to create something that is solely participatory, especially when you're having to meet the requirements of something like the national curriculum, but kind of shifting the emphasis away from presentational, showing that actually as a musician, what you, the teacher, desire most for your pupils is that they enjoy participating and that they learn through participating. And it's not necessarily that they get everything right or they meet a certain level of achievement. But yeah, I, I agree. I think there's significant overlap, especially when you're trying to, you know, Thomas Torino is an ethnomusicologist. He's observing practices which already exist. And then in trying to see how these practices could be used in pedagogy is a completely different exercise. And actually, I discovered very quickly as a music teacher, and I imagine this is probably the same for anyone trying to teach something that's a bit more creative, open-ended and participatory, is the pupils can be really quite old school about this stuff. They see you as the teacher who's going to tell them whether they're right or not. And that's a really hard mindset for some of them to get out of, I certainly find. I, I don't know whether you found that was the case in the work you were doing as well. Yes, yes, definitely. And in fact, when that article was reviewed so in the peer review process one of my reviewers commented on so it's got extracts of my teaching in it and pupils responses and one of the reviewers mentioned that I seemed quite focused on you know the accuracy of the presentation and trying to then have to explain to the reviewer that a I'd already given these lessons I couldn't change what I'd said (laughs) but yes that I was inclined towards you know, this kind of 
as you say, old school style of teaching. And, and a lot of my pupils were too. They wanted to be right. They wanted to get the notation right. They wanted me to correct them when they were wrong. And it's really hard to overcome that kind of ingrained sense of this is the school classroom and therefore there are certain expectations which we must meet. That's that's really interesting and kind of touches upon the the kind of tensions that are present and the challenges that practitioner researchers face. It's interesting that the peer reviewer brought that up because, you know, this is a a challenge that a lot of our student teachers who are trying out classroom-based research for the first time can find quite quite challenging. So I was just wondering if you could elaborate a bit more on, you know, what the impact uh, this kind of relationship of you as the academic and your persona as the classroom teacher and and how you kind of navigated those challenges. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's not easy. And I think that's really important to remember for anyone who's doing classroom based research for the first time. I went in and I was in my classroom teacher persona and some often I'd leave the classroom and listen back to the recordings that I'd made of me teaching and pupils having discussions and think, oh, did I really say that? I wish I hadn't said that. You know, every shred of academic in me was like, oh, you shouldn't have said that. Well, you know, why did you respond like that? And in a way, that can be really disheartening because you come back and you think, how, how am I supposed to make research out of that? And I think the point of classroom-based research so much of the time is not about whether it comes across well in a peer-reviewed journal, you know, whether peer reviewers are going to admire your teaching. It's actually for your sake. It's for you to be able to go, oh, okay, that's making me cringe that I said that or that my pupils said that. Is that because it was poor teaching or is that actually it wasn't a problem? It's just me listening back to myself and not enjoying it very much. So often the most important thing to get out of it is that ability to step back from your teaching and put on a critical lens and say, okay, that wasn't as good as I thought it was at the time. Or actually that's that was more effective, that was better than I thought it was. I'm going to try that again, or I'm absolutely not going to try that again. Or, you know, listen to what your pupils have to say, comments that they perhaps make in the class that at the time you kind of shrugged and said, okay, yeah, great, let's move on. You might listen back and go, oh, actually, that was really insightful. I should follow that up. You know, they've got an idea that actually could be something really fruitful in future lessons, and I should make sure I recognise that. Yeah, so using it more as a kind of reflective exercise and acknowledging that when you write it up as research, whether you want to get it published or whatever, it will have some strange quirks in it because teachers are quirky and say funny things that they wish never came out of the classroom. Yeah. But they do sometimes. <laughs> it, it was very heartening, actually, because you, I, I really loved that paper because you expose some of those things in in the article itself you know and you there are there are instances in the article where you have to sort of you have to state that you know time ran out and you weren't able to do x part of the of the data gathering with your year sevens and it's just really yeah. heartening and I, I i wonder how many i think you made a really interesting point about the peer reviewers and i wonder how many of those peer reviewers are classroom practitioners trying to do practitioner yeah. research and, and how much sympathy yeah. there is uh, and how important it is to keep those kind of I, I, it's probably wrong to call them this but the warts and all of 
of doing classroom-based research. I think it's yeah. important for those to be in the papers. Um, yeah. So I, th I thank you for that on behalf of myself <laughs> as a classroom-based researcher and also <laughs> our students. <laughs> yeah, it's and it's sometimes horrible to look at yourself in that way and have to admit it in your, you know, in a research paper that's going to be published to say, oh, you know, look at my shortcomings. I ran out of time or I said things I didn't want to say. But that's that's reality and we've got to be realistic. It's interesting because we hear a lot about classroom-based research as potentially being, you know, a, an easy fix to that gap that people see between you know, pure research and pure teaching. But actually, you know, what, what comes out of your article, I guess, is... is how difficult it is because you're actually doing two jobs at the same time. I mean, in a way, the researchers have got it easy and the teachers have got it easy, but the teacher researchers are, are trying to be two people at once. Yeah. So it's actually not such an easy fix. But but you're saying really important that we try and do it. Yes, 100%. And even if it never quite crosses those those boundaries, I think a lot of teachers will spend time during their careers kind of doing research that's not really labelled as such. You know, it never gets written up, it never gets recorded in data sets. But just, you know, taking the opportunity once in a while, maybe once a term, when you are assessing your your pupils, assess yourself too, you know, record your lesson and, and think, what was I doing? What could I change about this? That's That's research and that will start to bridge that gap even if you're also trying to back away from the pressure of being both teacher full-time and researcher full-time. There are ways of getting the benefits of doing practical research while also not overstretching yourself. Really, really important sentiments for, for everyone in the profession to hear. Thanks for that, Elizabeth. And um, I note that you're currently working on your doctorate at the moment. I'm sure that there are you know, extra challenges now in, in, in the current situation that we're in. But, um, yes. you know, maybe maybe I'm putting you on the spot here, but I'm just wondering, you know, how that's going. You're looking at researching the perception of musical vulnerability in secondary music education, or that's at least what the article told me. <laughs> is it still that? And how's it going? <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, that that it is roughly. Yes, um, it is roughly still that. Yeah, it's going very well. So I've almost done what I've done about nine months looking at this concept that I'm calling musical vulnerability, which is the idea that music can have both positive and negative effects in the classroom, trying to kind of counter this continual argument that you see in documents like the National Curriculum, that music is really good for you and all pupils must do music because it will make them better people. And I'm kind of looking at that with a bit more of a critical perspective and saying, actually, Often the way we present music in the classroom can cause damage and it can really upset people. It can cause long-term disengagement with music. So I'm investigating that. I've spent this year kind of at my desk theorising it. And then hopefully next year we'll get to go into some schools and um, interview some teachers and some pupils about their thoughts on that subject. That's obviously subject to whether schools <laughs> reopen anytime soon. But yeah, it's it's been really fascinating and just kind of building on a lot of research that I've done previously looking at why should music be taught in the classroom? You know, what effect does it have, particularly for those pupils who they won't take it further than compulsory expectations. They'll they'll drop it at age 14 and they might never think about it ever again. So 
I'm enjoying it very much, <laughs> but we'll we'll see what happens. There's a really interesting chapter in uh, debates in music teaching, and I'm trying to remember the title of it now. Something about music being good for you, with a massive question mark after it. <laughs> Chris Philpot's yeah, Chris Philpot about um, yes, music can be good for you yeah. and music can be bad for you. That was my initial inspiration for my first article, and yeah, it's carried through. I think this idea that music. Yeah, music can, it can create community, but it can also break it apart for everyone that, you know, whose musical identity is accepted and celebrated. There will always be some people whose musical identity is, yeah, is frowned upon and they're excluded yeah. because of it. And I think looking at both those sides of the coin is, is immensely important. I think it's important for all of the creative arts, actually, isn't it? Because Emma, I know you get a mm. lot of people who want to be drama teachers because they think they're going to be everybody's therapist, don't yeah. they? I mean, it's, it's yeah. just really dangerous, I think, and, and, and difficult yep. to just see our subjects as this sort of, this this force for good, I guess, mm. because it, it's not always that simple. And I wonder, compounded even more when you are marginal subjects and when and, and perhaps we you know practitioners that do kind of sort of evangelize of that's the right word about about the kind of benefits you know how it's really good for you how you know maybe maybe they're sort of a big part of the problem and they're doing it because they really believe that the subject you know they want their subject on on the curriculum particularly from a drama perspective you know who've always been kind of a marginalized uh, bottom feeder at the feast mm-hmm. um you know perhaps we do do some damage in being evangelical about the sort of social developmental aspects yeah. and it being good for you because as soon as it's not good for you and as soon as you get pupils who drop out and find it very difficult then your justification for being in the curriculum has disappeared. Mm, um, exactly. You know, there's there's no point anymore. So yes, yeah. There's got to be more. There's got to be more mm-hmm. to say. <laughs> okay, so moving on from the deep discussion now, I I have a feeling I may have buried this deep in an email in which I uh, asked you to come on the podcast, but we we do have three regular slots. It's okay. I've remembered them. Yeah. <gasps> You're a legend. Thank, Thank you, you Elizabeth. <laughs> Always on the ball. Brilliant. Um, so have you got uh, something interesting uh, to read, listen to, uh, watch um, that you would recommend our listeners have a look at? Um, this was really hard to choose. <laughs> the first thing that actually came into my head was has already been recommended on your podcast. So I won't use that Goodness one. Me. I know. Isn't that strange? One of I've read a lot of things this year. I've read 400 different books and articles and things. Um, but if I had to pick one, uh, a recent publication um, was a book called Class Control and Classical Music, which came out at the end of 2019. It's by a scholar called Anna Bull. She is great. <laughs> and um, she's a sociologist, but writing about classical music in education settings, not specifically in schools, but this particular book is writing up her ethnographic research into things like youth orchestras and youth choirs and looking at the ways in which we perpetuate dominant social discourse in ways that can be both hugely encouraging for pupils but also potentially damaging. It's a really fascinating read. I would highly recommend it. Whether you're a musician or not, whether you're interested in kind of of out-of-school music making or not, um, mm. yeah, excellent scholarship. 
Thank you for that. Um, and then kind of from a, a practical perspective, we, we often ask, is there something to try that uh, our students, when they eventually get back in the classroom, or indeed maybe remotely, <laughs> could, mm-hmm. uh, could have a go at implementing? Have you got anything to try? Yeah, I also spent a long time thinking about this. And I think, so I, in the jobs that I've worked in in schools, I've been immensely privileged that the first um, job I took was in a boarding school and so I spent a lot of time doing boarding duties as well as teaching and I'm not going to recommend that everybody goes and works in boarding schools but um, what I would recommend is just the importance of getting to know your pupils really well so both in the classroom and outside the classroom I think that's probably made the biggest difference to my teaching practice was is the little things it's the five minutes before the lesson starts standing outside the classroom and chatting with them about how they're doing what they've just been up to I you know I've had pupils who start playing games with me outside the classroom and pupils who I spend spent my evenings you know doing their science homework with them and it's actually those things that mean you come to know your pupils well enough to to teach them well and it means that you can go into your classroom and be relaxed about what you're teaching because you know who your audience is and it means you get the most rewarding results from from the whole teaching experience if you know how your pupils are finding it. I'm still in touch with pupils that I taught at my first school and it's amazing to see how they're getting on and to think about the difference that you made to them as a teacher but you can't do that if you only see them for an hour a week when they're literally in your classroom and you're standing in front of them. So putting in the extra effort, yeah. That is a fab and non-subject specific piece of advice. I think I think we should mm-hmm. all take <laughs> very good note of that. And finally, uh, how, well, is, uh, whether this is lockdown specific or not, I don't know. How, <laughs> would you, uh, how would you go about looking after your well-being? Yeah, I, this is such a hard question. And I, um, I wouldn't take advice from myself about looking after my own well-being. Um, <laughs> but if I had to give myself advice, which I often do have to, I think I regularly have to remind myself that the most important thing I can do for my research or for my teaching or for whatever it is that I'm spending most of my time doing, sometimes the most important thing to do for that is to take time out, is to take a step back and look after yourself. And I think it's so easy particularly when teaching, to feel like if you are not being actively productive, then you're not achieving. Actually, you can't be actively productive unless you are emotionally and mentally stable and looking after yourself. And sometimes that means having to prioritise that for the sake of yourself and your pupils and your job. So I think knowing that we're not superhuman and sometimes we have to take a break is really really important excellent advice and um, you know some really great advice throughout uh, this podcast it's been an absolute privilege getting to talk to you and take a deep dive into your research elizabeth and we wish you best of luck with your doctoral research and it'd be really nice to have you back and to get a sense of uh, the findings that you're getting um, in relation to your work about musical vulnerability definitely want to talk more about that and from a personal perspective it's been really lovely to see some of the overlaps and some of the issues similar issues that we experience um, between music and drama and I would I would imagine across other arts subjects and maybe beyond so thank you for your time 
Oh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. So we'll be back uh, next time with uh, something. We don't know quite what, uh, but we hope you've enjoyed that. And even if you're not a music specialist, that you, you've seen some overlaps like Emma, perhaps, um, or, or just taken something interesting from it or some inspiration. So thank you. And we will be back with you in a fortnight. Bye, everyone. That was Emma and Tom's PGCE podcast presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. The special guest this episode was Elizabeth McGregor from the University of Sheffield. The first article we referred to in this episode is Justifying Music in the National Curriculum, the Habit Concept and the Question of Social Justice and Academic Rigour, published in the British Journal of Music Education. The second article is Participatory Performance in the Secondary Music Classroom and the Paradox of Belonging, published in Music Education Research. Apologies for the occasional issues with the line to Cambridge during this episode and thanks to Elizabeth for persevering with us and showing her true music teacher colours by being able to produce microphones, wires and other bits of techie equipment while in the midst of coronavirus lockdown. We're off to reminisce about the good old days when you could interview someone by sitting in a room with them and sticking an audio recorder on the table. Ah, those were the days. Until next time, take care and enjoy teaching. Thank you.